0: You know, anytime I talk about somebody I know on here, I always feel this tinge of guilt afterward. Like, oh man, like even they're never going to hear it. But I always feel a little bit guilty, like I'm gossiping or talking shit, which there's, there's usually no difference between gossiping and talking shit. But to me, it's a parable. To me, it's like a biblical parable. And if you read the Bible and you forget what you're reading, <clears throat> a lot of the parables are basically gossip. It's like, here's one thing that this person did. Here's one example of this person making a bad or weird decision. And you're supposed to learn from it. <laughs> but if you were to look at that from a different point of view, a lot of parables are basically like, here's an example of something stupid somebody did. Here's an example of human folly, which is what a lot of gossip is, which is what a lot of talking shit is, Is you know? It's like, here's an example of someone I know who made a bad decision? Oh, did you hear about so and so? They did something stupid. They did something bad. They did something that, you know, we <laughs> they did something that's worth discussing, that's worth thinking about. You know, if you want to cast talking shit or gossip in the best possible light, it's like, well, here's a parable. But usually when people gossip, they're not even trying to learn from it. You know, a lot of what makes something gossip or what makes something talking shit is that it's made to look to make that person look bad. It's this kind of negative currency. But, you know, when I do talk about people and, I, and this hopefully applies to just when I'm talking to friends and, you know, naturally you're going you're to talk about people a little bit because people are interesting. People are interesting, but hopefully it is kind of a parable. Not that you have to go through your life seeing other human beings, the people you know as characters in a story, but we do that anyway. But it's just funny, read the Bible and go, you know what, there, this is gossip. Oh, John, he, uh, did you hear about what he did with one of his sheep? Did you hear the story about <laughs> doubting Thomas? Did you hear about doubting Thomas? gossip. It's talking shit. No, you know, yesterday I was talking about uh, a friend of mine, a guy, a a researcher, and how I had a disagreement with him. And it was, you know, it's not personal. And I don't argue with people about politics or society. Whenever that stuff comes up with somebody I know, if I sense disagreement, I don't even go there. It's not worth it. Because when you argue with people about politics or society, You immediately place yourself in the role of trying to convince them, trying to change their mind, trying to control them. That's immediately what you start doing. Even if you're not trying to do that, even if you're just trying to talk about, even if you're just trying to explain why you see things the way you do, you immediately start acting like someone who's trying to control them, and they immediately start acting like someone who's trying to control you. And if there's one thing that I don't want in life, I don't want anybody trying to control anybody. And we have so much of that. But I talked to the the research friends I have tonight. We had a phone call and I'm not going to go into everything we talked about. It's nerdy stuff related to a very specific interest that nobody else cares about, which I'm very well aware of. And that makes it funny to me, like where it's like, oh, yeah, I care about something that nobody else in the world cares about. And these guys also care about it, which is why we're friends and we collaborate together. And here we disagree about something that even the people who care about this don't care about. But we were talking about it and it was a good, it was a friendly conversation and everything. But I realized at one point that the reason why we couldn't see eye to eye was because they were assuming intent on my part. Because I even tried to be... I tried to be as tactful as possible and just, I tried to frame what I was saying as agreeing with them because my entire point was, isn't this new information that came out significant? Isn't this information significant? It wasn't because this information is significant, you're wrong. It was just, can you at least acknowledge that this new information that came out is significant when talking about the history of the mafia? And they were coming from a place of no. And you can't go anywhere with that. If you think something is significant and somebody else doesn't, you can't go anywhere with it, you know? Because you're not able to actually get past that. And I realized at some point in the conversation, though, I was like, oh, no matter what I say, no matter how much I agree with them, saying anything is going to sound to them like I am trying to convince them or I'm challenging them in some way. And even when I make my point as agreeable as possible, which I did, they still think that I'm trying to change their minds, which I wasn't trying to do. All I wanted them to do was just say, yeah, you're right. You know, that information is significant and worth talking about. But as soon as I realized, oh, no matter what I say, these guys are going to think that I'm trying to challenge them. And even though it doesn't get personal, even though nobody's actually mad at the other person, when somebody senses that, when somebody senses that you have an ulterior motive, there's no going past that. There's no there's no way to be agreeable in that situation. And so we moved on talked about other things, but... Wow. Because Because I mentioned it last night and I felt a little bad, like, hey, I, I'm so right, and these other guys I know are so wrong. My friend is so wrong. I just wanted to do a little follow up because it, it's just an interesting. It's a parable to me. You know it's it's something where I, I I did learn something from it. I hate to always have a moral, but it's like I did learn something from that conversation because specifically because I don't get into arguments very much. Normally, me and these guys are always in agreement about everything. And that's what's significant when you disagree. But my whole point was that no matter what conclusion or no matter what you think, this new information is significant based on our understanding of the patterns and trends in this organization that we research. I just wanted to say it's significant and we should file that away. This is actually literally what I said. I was like, it's it's significant enough that we should keep we should file this into the we should file this away in the backs of our minds and keep an eye out for other information that plays into this. That was basically the point I was making. But I could tell at some point that it was like, oh no, they think that I'm trying to convince them of something. And no matter how much I agree with them, they're going to sense disagreement. They're going to sense that I'm trying to do something. But anyway, enough about that. Once And once you realize that, you can change topics. Like, once you realize that you're not going to get anywhere with it, Batty, come on. Come on, buddy. Oh, it's got a squirt gun for that purpose. A spray bottle. Got a spray out there. He's been doing this thing for the last week week and a half where it's just he's barking every time he goes outside he's barking at nothing and it's it doesn't matter the time of day he goes into the backyard and he just he's barking at something it kind of fits everything that's going on but uh anyway like once you realize that somebody thinks you have some kind of intention behind what you're doing, if you don't have that intention, you just have to let it go. Because every single thing you say, no matter what it is, they're going to think that by even wanting to talk about it, by even just wanting to talk about it outside of an argument, outside of any kind of debate, just by wanting to talk about it at all, they're going to think that you're trying to make a point or convince them of something. And that's a good signal that, oh, we can't talk about this anymore. And I think that's true of politics and society and other controversial issues, real controversial issues that people get legitimately upset about is sometimes by even wanting to talk about something, they think you're trying to convince somebody or convince them. And, you know, it's so hard to not take things personally. Because, you even you know, I say that those are legitimately controversial issues, politics and society. They're not, though. Most of the, the political and social arguments you get into actually don't pertain to your life at all. They don't pertain to that person's life. But we've internalized them so deeply that we think they do. Yes, yeah, some things matter. Or they matter to somebody out there. But we've so deeply internalized politics that talking about them at all, even when they don't pertain to our individual lives and our individual relationships, makes us feel something personal. And I've seen where, like, even talking about something that you have no involvement in, someone will personalize that. And... Uh, there's, there's a magnetism to that. It just, it pulls you in. And you think because you're involved, because you're a part of the argument or the discussion. And I don't like debate for debate's sake. Like, I'm not somebody, I'm not a debate club kid. You know, debate club kids, they're they're like theater kids. Even though I think it's a good exercise to play devil's advocate sometimes... I would not have done well in something like debate club where they give you a topic and they tell you to defend it. I think that's a good thing to do in your own head, but I never would have been into that. I'm not one of those people. I'm not one of those people who's just like, I'm going to argue with you just as an exercise. I try to be fairly agreeable, actually. But uh, anyway, I try to be very agreeable, actually. And I do, you know, the reason I do that is because I'm such a disagreeable person inside. Usually what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling inside when someone's saying something is highly disagreeable. Normally I'm thinking like, oh man, that's a bunch of crap. Oh my God. And so so I have to resist that urge to argue or disagree by being a little more, okay, yeah, sure. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Because I don't lose anything when I give someone the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's weird because I'm still in such a dissociated place, dis- dissociated state. Like the last couple of weeks I mentioned, you know, I haven't, I've really been unaware of politics and what's going on. Like, I don't know what the current debate is concerning all of these hot button issues. I pick up on little things here and there. But it feel, they just feel like echoes to me. Like it's hard for me to imagine right now that anybody has an actual opinion on coronavirus policy. One way or the other. Like I forgot about the booster. I still haven't gotten it and I totally forgot about it. I'm not even joking. Like I put my mask on when I have to go do something. But I've kind of forgotten about that lately. And then I'll, I'll see news headlines. Like, I mean, a good example is, you know, occasionally I talk about Joe Rogan, but I'm, I'm blown away by every time I even get a glimpse of the news or look at social media for a second, I see the name Joe Rogan now. I never would have imagined that. I think I first started listening to Joe Rogan around 2015, maybe yeah, probably around 2015. And I never would have imagined that I would just look at the news and I would see headlines about Joe Rogan all the time. And this isn't even just an internet thing. You know, when I talked to my dad on the phone a few weeks ago, my dad has never been online. I'm sure he's used the internet once or something, but my dad is about as offline as you can get for a human being today. He's about, you know, he's 74 years old and he's about as offline as you can get. And uh, he brought up Joe Rogan. Within minutes of talking to him, He was like, "Yeah, I heard Joe Rogan was. I heard. I heard that Joe Rogan had this doctor on," and I was like, "Oh, Joe Rogan. Yeah, I've been listening to him since about 2015." And he was like, "Really?" Because this is a new name to him. This is a new person to him. But uh, the name, his name, is big enough. His name comes up enough that even my dad, who doesn't use the internet, who's never listened to a podcast in his life. He was probably recently introduced to the idea of a podcast. He probably just learned the word podcast, honestly. But it's it's relevant enough that he brings it up right away. But you know, it came out where it's like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. Neil Young and Joni Mitchell are taking a stand against Karoni, or against Joe Rogan for spreading coronavirus misinformation by having their music removed from Spotify. They're welcome to do that, but it's silly. It's always fun to see older people who prided themselves on this rock and roll counterculture just become so uncool. I've never been a Neil Young fan. I have no beef with Neil Young. I've had friends who are big fans, have no problem whatsoever with him. Don't even know much about him, to be honest. But it's, it's, it's been interesting to see in the coronavi age in the last couple years how uncool older people are willing to make themselves. Those people who have been milking counterculture for many years. Howard Stern's another example, who I liked. I never listened to the Howard Stern radio show, but when I was growing up, he had that TV show. It was just a TV version of his radio show, and I used to like watching that a lot. And I've always been a fan of the fact that he... You know, stood up for free speech. You know, he, he was into pushing the boundaries as to what you could express. He's really made himself uncool. Might be one of the best examples of somebody just making themselves as uncool as possible. You know, my favorite Howard Stern episode that I ever saw was when he had the Carter brothers on. The Backstreet Boy, Nick Carter, and his brother Aaron... And I, I, I didn't know anything about them. Like when I was in junior high and all the girls were into the Backstreet Boys, I was like, oh, it's a boy band. Oh, I don't care about a boy band. But you know what? I had a, an ex-girlfriend of mine had the Backstreet Boys Millennium CD and she put it on in the car. I think I still have it, actually. I think she ended up leaving it behind when we broke up and I just kept it, not returning that. But she put it on in the car once and I was like, this is really fucking good non-ironically just because the thing about those old pop cds the thing about like a britney spears cd who i like i've always been a britney spears fan going back to that first album but uh, i i couldn't let myself get into the backstreet boys back then but uh the thing about those pop cds from that era backstreet boys and things like that is they front load all the hits on the album so if you put on backstreet boys millennium the first four songs are the biggest hits and they do that on purpose because they know the average Backstreet Boy fan wasn't going to listen to an entire album. They're not in it for the album. They're just going to play the hits over and over again. So it's funny how they don't even care about distributing. They don't, they, don't they don't even care about like balancing out the album. It's just we're going to put the four hits. We're going to make the four hits the first four tracks. But anyway, the, uh, the uh, Aaron Carter and, and Nick Carter on Howard Stern is one of the best episodes. Because I had no idea they were such swampy Florida trash. And I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. I'm not one of these people who talk shit on Florida. I might feel differently if I lived there, but I'm not one of these people who talk shit about Florida. So when I say they're swampy Florida trash, I mean it in the most complimentary way possible. And thanks to that episode, thanks to that Howard, Nick Carter on Howard Stern, it came out. This was right after Deborah LaFave became famous. She was the blonde teacher who screwed a student. And everybody was like, oh, it shouldn't even be a crime. I wish I was that kid. I wish I was the kid who screwed his hot blonde teacher. But Nick Carter revealed, he's like, oh yeah, she was my high school sweetheart and I lost my virginity to her. And that blew my mind. It's like she became significant in her own way, and her high school sweetheart was Nick Carter. Like he he said he lost his virginity to her in high school or something like that. And I'm just like, that's so perfect. It's so perfect that Nick Carter is secretly swampy Florida trash and has this long history with her, the teacher, the blonde teacher who screwed her student and got famous for it. But Howard Stern, you know, I never was a fan of him. You know, I was never like, oh dude, Howard Stern's my guy, dude. Oh oh you're talking about Howard Stern, dude? He's my guy. I just liked the whole dynamic. Howard Stern was a part of that. But it was just the whole dynamic, like the freak group, whatever they were called, the freak group. I always liked them. You know, there's, there's some classic episodes, like when Insane Clown Posse was on there. I mean, it was before everybody knew about Juggalos. Insane Clown Posse was on Howard Stern before everybody had a joke about Juggalos. That one was good. Another good one was Henry Hill. I mean, he was on there a lot. The guy who Goodfellas is based on. There was one where Henry Hill was on there and he was drunk out of his mind. And Howard Stern kept asking him, like, I guess Henry Hill's daughter had married a black guy and had kids with with him. And Howard Stern kept asking him, like, come on, like, do you secretly hate it? Do Do you secretly hate the fact that your daughter had kids with a black guy? It was really provocative. I mean, that kind of, but then what's so interesting is how different he is from that now. He's the worst of the worst. And so, this older generation of baby boomers—it's interesting how the last couple years—and it may have been happening gradually, but it seems like a lot of them have just lost their minds, lost who they are, all at the same time. They've just been so gripped by fear. Maybe I don't even—I don't even know. But kind of along those lines, like you know, I feel similarly about old Howard Stern as I do Joe Rogan. Not that they're that similar or anything, but even though I've been listening to Joe Rogan for. God, like seven years. It's had, you know, it's, I'm not somebody who's like, oh, Joe Rogan's my guy, dude. Oh, dude, he's my dude. Dude, he's my dude. You know, and what's weird though is with him becoming this, with this manufactured controversy around him, it puts you in the position of defending him. Even if you're not getting in actual conversations where you're arguing about Joe Rogan, of all people, even just mentally, like in this really dissociated state. When I see a news headline that's like, Joe Rogan is spreading misinformation, in my head, I'm like, give me a break. Like, it puts you in the position of having to defend him. And if I were just to say to somebody, oh, yeah, I've been listening to Joe Rogan since, what, 2015, they probably think that I'm influenced by him or that I agree with him about everything. When even back then, even in 2015, 2016, when I feel like I feel like his show was really at its peak around 2016, 2017. What's interesting about him being such a cultural force right now and people talking about him continuously to the point where even my dad knows who he is. The thing that's so interesting about that is he felt more culturally relevant years ago. Like he felt more culturally relevant in 2017. But because of this coronavirus debate, he's, he's been forced into all of these conversations. And my take on him was always just he's an everyman. The reason why his show was good is not because people like me. I mean, I remember being in L.A. in like 2016 and hanging out and, and it came out that I found out Miles was a fan, too. And Miles is not a... You'd never expect Miles, my friend Miles, to be a a Joe Rogan guy. And he wasn't. And I'm not a Joe Rogan guy. It was just, oh, that's something to listen to. It's something to put on and you'll just hear people talk. Most of the time, you'll tune it out. Most of the time, you'll just kind of go, oh, they're talking. It, It truly is just something good to have on in the background. And it's not always good. But by forcing... By forcing him into the cultural conversation, the way they have, it forces you to have a, a, you know, a more defined opinion on someone like that than you even would or do. That's what's so weird about our culture. is just that when they go after somebody like that, when they try to demonize somebody like that, it forces you to defend somebody that you otherwise would just have a fairly neutral opinion of. Like, oh, he's a guy who talks. And a friend of mine was telling me even, you know, my dad brought him up, but not in a negative way. Like, my dad's never even heard him. And my dad pushes back heavily on a lot of what's going on in our world today. He's not a fan of the government. So, I mean, I think he he probably appreciates whatever Joe Rogan's doing, even though he doesn't pay attention. But my friend's parents, who are hardcore liberal Democrats, Joe Rogan came up and they're like, oh, Joe Rogan, he's so bad. And it's amazing to me that somebody's parents could even think that. Like, my friend's baby boomer parents have a hardline opinion about who Joe Rogan is and what he's doing. And I'm just like, that's crazy. That is crazy. And I see some of the views people have on him. I mean, something I see not everywhere, not all the time, but there are people out there, and I see their views in a lot of places where they're like, oh, he's far right. I've even seen people call him a white supremacist, which has become this catch-all. You know, I've mentioned before how, as our world has become more secular, Adolf Hitler has become the Antichrist. Like, if you were to refer to somebody as the Antichrist, people would just laugh it off for the most part. Nobody would take that seriously. Oh, he's the Antichrist. It's, it's kind of lighthearted to say that. So what you do instead is you compare him to Hitler. That's how you call somebody evil. You say, oh, he's like Adolf Hitler. It's like Adolf Hitler. And the same thing applies to good and evil. Where if you call somebody evil, if you say so and so is evil, there's almost this lightheartedness to that. Like somebody's not going to take that seriously. But if you call somebody racist or white supremacist, they're going to categorize that person as evil. Calling someone a white supremacist has become the way to call somebody evil and have a certain sort of person go, oh, he must be bad. Whereas actually calling them evil isn't going to do anything. Meanwhile, that's what they mean. When I see people on the left call Joe Rogan a white supremacist, what they're essentially communicating is he is evil and they want people to understand that. Meanwhile, it's absurd to say that. I saw something similar. I mean, one of the only news stories I've seen recently is about the Ottawa truckers. I just saw a very brief overview of that. I watched a video actually, it was about a minute long. And it was it just it just showed the honking, the great honking that's going on there. It was actually very impressive. I'm sure it's awful to be there. I would hate to be in a city where anybody's just honking their horns continuously. But what was so interesting about it, I was saying this to somebody last night is that along with people just hitting their horns, some of these trucks have set it up so their horn is just continuously droning. There's all these semi-trucks just with a continuous nonstop droning horn. And what it sounded like on this video, because the video was kind of quiet, like it was somebody up in an apartment building just filming what was going on in the streets, and it sounded like a bunch of organs playing just low-end keys it sounded like a like like it sounded like somebody playing an organ or a bunch of organ a bunch of organs just slowly shifting between dissonant keys. And it was actually beautiful. I was like beyond the fact that it's probably awful to be there, it just it was incredible to hear these just shifting like it almost took on a harmonic quality given all the horns were going at the same time. But I saw some people expressing opinions about it where they're like Oh my God, I'm stuck in Ottawa having to hear this white these white supremacists honk their horns. So they're doing the same thing. They're saying, like, I'm having to listen to evil people honk their horns continuously. Because there's no basis for calling these truckers white supremacists. Like, they're protesting vaccine mandates. There's no reason to call them white supremacists. But just calling them evil or bad isn't good enough. So to communicate that, to effectively brand them, you call them white supremacists. Because people who say that, they're living in a fantasy world where that's what they're hearing. They're living in a fantasy world where when they hear these honking horns, they're hearing white supremacists. When they hear about Joe Rogan talking about something that isn't part of the... That isn't part of what they consider acceptable discourse. Like they have no idea that he's a he's a very mild character. He's a very middle-of-the-road, kind of the road, everyman sort of thinker. He's not eccentric. He doesn't say anything that's particularly surprising. He's just a guy. He's just a dude. But when they think about him, they're like, there is this white supremacist. I mean, one thing you hear more than that, because I think that's just a fringe person. I think the sort of person who calls Joe Rogan racist or white supremacist is on the fringes. But I do see this view expressed where people will call him far right. They'll say he's, he's far right. Or more commonly, they'll say he's a gateway to the far right. And far right has taken on a similar property as evil. In the same way that someone will use white supremacist To call someone evil because you can't really call someone evil and have anybody take it seriously anymore. When you call somebody far right, you're saying they're evil. You're not actually talking about the nuances of their political beliefs. And we've seen where the way people use far right is like when they say that they basically mean anybody to the right of me is far right. And when they can't actually say that and be taken seriously, they'll say a gateway to the far right. And I see that said a lot. I see a lot of people say Joe Rogan is a gateway to the far right. So what they're trying to say is he is a gateway to evil. Joe Rogan is a gateway to evil. That's what they're saying. And it's it's so weird to be in today's world and that's going on. It's weird that Neil Young is making some bold statement where he removes his music from a platform because he thinks Joe Rogan, of all people, is so dangerous. And I think people like me, who have just kind of paid attention to Joe Rogan for years and never really taken it to heart. You know, I've never really taken him particularly seriously. It's just a show. And I would say it's one of the more middle-of-the-road shows out there. So to live in a world where these... Over-the-hill artists are like, I am taking a stand by removing my music from the platform that supports this dangerous pundit, Jirogan. Jirogan. I'm just like, things have gotten very weird. I mean, they've been weird. But the fact that I'm in such a dissociative state and the little glimpse I get at what's going on in the world is all of this very heated dialogue about Joe Rogan. I'm like, this is weird. I can't imagine having a hardline opinion about him. But that's just the strange thing. When someone decides that someone who you know to be fairly, fairly average, just a dude, when they decide that that person is evil, it puts you in the position of having to defend them. Even if it's just in your mind, it kind of forces you to have a more definitive opinion of him than you otherwise would. And I was wrong about something years ago. I remember probably around 2018 saying to a friend, I was like, well, if they ever go after Joe Rogan, it's going to radicalize a lot of people. You know, he's so normal. And yeah, he, he's into psychedelics, but he's just this normal guy with, who happens to be a celebrity, who's into guy stuff. But he's so normal. He's so... Uh, he, he's so obviously non-controversial. That in 2018 or around there, I do remember saying to my friend, I was like, well, if they ever go after him, it's going to radicalize a lot of people because there's no way that somebody could could see the corporate press could see the left going after a guy like that and take it seriously. And I think that's partially true. I think there are a lot of people out there right now who are seeing what's going on, the controversy that's been manufactured around Rogan. And I think they are thinking that they're like, I can't believe this, but I think those people already know that. I think in many cases, those people already know that the people going after him are out of their minds. But what gets me is there are a lot of people who are going after him. And this wouldn't have even come up for conversation five or six years ago. Around 2016, I worked with a guy who, he was a Rogan guy. Like, he was the kind of guy who, who would probably say, like, Rogan's my dude, man. Rogan's my man, dude. He was the kind of guy where you noticed that after somebody had been a guest on Rogan, this guy would be reading the book. Like if an author was on Joe Rogan, this guy would check out the book. Not that he was an idiot, not that he was a follower, but he was just like a dad who, if somebody was on Joe Rogan who said something interesting, this guy would buy the book and read it, which I would never do. But uh, a coworker, a friend, she was a friend of mine, but a coworker brought that up to me. She was like, oh yeah, he's, he's really into Joe Rogan and this and that. And I was like, oh, I listened to Joe Rogan. And, and she was like, I don't like him. I don't like Joe Rogan. And she was very progressive. She was very far left. But she didn't say it like he was evil. She just said it like, oh, he's, a, he's just a stupid bro. Uh, he's too much of a bro for me. So it's interesting to see, like, that was like the first indication I had that there was a certain type of person who would even have an opinion on him at all. And I bet if you were to ask her today, you know, I haven't talked to her in a while and she's a smart person. She's a good person. But if I were to talk to her today about it, I wouldn't be surprised if she has a much more severe opinion on him. But that was the first time I ever heard of, it, it, it took me by surprise because it was the first time that I ever heard somebody just be like, I don't like him. As if you needed to have an opinion on him. Because as somebody who listened to the show, I didn't even have a real opinion on him. And I remember just thinking to myself, huh, that's crazy that she even has an opinion. And then now that having an opinion on him is political. It's a big part of the, the conversation going on now. And people view him as legitimately dangerous. or so They're trying to cast him as legitimately dangerous. It just shows you how far things have gone, how weird things have gotten. And there are conservative pundits who don't help the matter at all, like where there are these quote-unquote independent newspaper publications online, and they'll publish articles. I'll see these articles on occasion where they say things like, Joe Rogan says this. Like, it's something that Joe Rogan said off the cuff that they agree with. Like, there was one thing I saw where a little while back, Joe Rogan said something like, Joe Rogan, Drogan? Rogan, Drogan. Rogan said, he made a little joke where he said, I think masks are like the mega hats of Democrats. It was said as a joke. And he's not, you know, he's a stand up comedian, but he's not even that funny. Like, Joe Rogan isn't a guy who's made me laugh very many times. And I don't mean that as an insult to him. I just don't think of him as a particularly witty guy. But that's a it's a fairly funny little thing to say. You know, it's not a serious talking point. Oh, masks are kind of like the mega hats for Democrats. There's a little bit of truth in that, but it's, it's a joke. But I saw where this conservative pundit magazine, this conservative pundit online newspaper, wrote an article about that because that supported their narrative. And that's not helping the matter. Like, it doesn't help the matter when anyone with an agenda says anything about Rogan. Like it doesn't help the matter when some very biased publication is like, Joe Rogan made an offhanded joke that we can use to to our advantage. So we're going to write an entire article about it. That's playing the same game and it's just as bad in many ways. And that's kind of what's created this situation where it kind of goes back to intent. Like I was talking about having that conversation with my researcher friends, and I realized at some point that no matter what I said about the topic we were debating, they were going to think that my intent was to prove them wrong. That I basically was trying to tell them they were wrong about something. And when I realized that they thought that, I was like, oh, there's nothing I can say. And that's what ends up happening when something becomes part of this just awful political discourse is that no matter what you say they think that you have some kind of intent they would think that that uh, you know if someone were to say i you know joe rogan spreading covid misinformation isn't that terrible these people are dying People are dying because of Joe Rogan. He's one of the reasons why we haven't uh, gotten back to normal. Because you realize that's what people think. Like in the same way that there are these comments from people online being like, the white supremacist truckers are honking. There are people who live in such a delusional fantasy world that in their mind, it's like Joe Rogan is spreading misinformation. And people are dying because of it. Our world is in a worse place because of something he said, or because he had this guest on. Because he's not going along with what the government and corporate media is saying. Our world is suffering. I'm suffering. It's this very delusional, distorted view of the world. And it also comes from a point of view where you think that people are taking everything he says to heart. By saying that you listen to Joe Rogan sometimes, or that you've listened to him for years, people might think that you've been influenced by him. I can't think of a single opinion I have that has been influenced by him. You know, a lot of my views and everything are pretty fully formed. Not that they're rigid, not that I'm unwilling to change, but the idea is that By him having a platform and saying whatever he wants, which is mostly inoffensive, most of what he says is very inoffensive, you know, Uh, but they think that, you know, by him having a platform and saying what he wants, that vulnerable people are being convinced that he's convincing people to do things. Meanwhile, the people who think that he's convincing people of something have been convinced themselves. They've been convinced by their peers They've been convinced by the government. They've been convinced by the corporate media. They've been so influenced that they, that they think everybody else is being influenced too. And it just, it centers around the censorship debate too, which is that you're not enough of an adult to contextualize this yourself. You're not enough of an adult To think on your own. To be presented with information or material to think on your own. I mean, I promised myself I wouldn't talk about e-commerce tonight. But it still blows my mind what I come across. Like, tonight I tried to sell something on Discogs. And, you know, I know I mention this every single freaking time. But I went to go list a CD on Discogs tonight that I decided to get rid of. And it said I couldn't. You're blocked from selling it. And this one blew my mind. Because, you know, while I'm against blocking anything, while I'm against Discog saying you... I'm against them dictating whether or not you can buy and sell anything, this one surprised me. And I'm not going to say what it was, but it's an artist. It's an experimental artist who explores controversial themes, but I never imagined in a million years that anybody would relate it to any kind of political or larger controversy like I never thought that this artist like it's it must be as simple as like maybe there's a lyric maybe there's one lyric that uses an offensive word or something that's the only thing I could think because I I just went to go list this and there's been a couple things that I've looked up to see if I could sell it and when when it's been blocked I've been like okay well I'm not terribly surprised even if I think it's silly even if I think they're wrong I'm not terribly surprised that they blocked this. This one did actually kind of blow my mind where I had to stop and think. I was like, even this, even this is blocked. And the the whole idea is that we don't think that you are mature enough. We don't think that you stand on firm enough ground to handle this. You know, we've entered this world where, you know, it's like movie ratings, like R-rated movies, where we're rating everything. Everything is being given a rating. And we're deciding who and who can't be exposed to it. Except it's worse than that. Because at least with the rating system, it's trying to limit the exposure to, say, children. Or they're trying to let you know what you're getting into. Like when they give something an R rating, you know, okay, this is going to have maybe some violence, maybe some sex, curse words. I know that if I go and see this with my parents, there could be some awkward scenes. Maybe I'll be sitting next to mom and dad and see a sex scene. So they're basically warning you. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to a rating system. Oh, hey, if you take your kid to go see this, they might see stuff that you don't want them to see. If you take your kid to see this, well, it's going to be totally appropriate because it's rated G. It's rated G. Ragey. Ragey. So a rating system makes sense. I shouldn't even have compared it to that because a rating system is just letting you know. Yeah, it limits kids from seeing certain things. But it's also just letting you know that we've decided to categorize this a certain way so that you know what you're getting yourself into. The direction that censorship has gone is like we're not even giving you the chance to experience it. We straight up don't think that you're enough of an adult to wrap your mind around this without it influencing you in some way. If you're exposed to this, we're worried that it will influence you in the worst possible way and so that one tonight the the cd i tried to sell tonight it just kind of blew my mind i was like i never imagined that this would be blocked i never imagined that but i also never imagined that joe rogan would be as controversial as he is because he's not and it's easy to call somebody controversial because a controversy has been stirred up around them. But I've made it a point in recent years to only call somebody controversial if they do actually express controversial views. Like they have to actually say something controversial or have a controversial stance on something in order to be called controversial. Otherwise, I'm going to call it a manufactured controversy. Which is an illusion. And what's interesting about the term misinformation is they are basically accusing somebody of creating illusions. They're basically calling somebody a spellcaster, they're calling them an evil magician. When Neil Young says that he's removing his music from Spotify in protest of Joe Rogan's misinformation, Drogon's misinformation the evil wizard Drogon but when he says that it's because of misinformation basically what he's saying in a mystical sense is he is a bad magician casting spells he is casting spells that blind people meanwhile we're very selective about what we consider misinformation And this is such an obvious point, but it still should be made, which is just you think about how much misinformation you're exposed to. You think about how much misinformation is spread deliberately by the mainstream media. And you don't see them held to the same standard. You know, newspaper articles can be written that get things straight up wrong. And they might put a little retraction buried in the next issue. But nobody accuses them of misinformation. But yet they're all too happy now. With the great editorialization of the media. With them not even trying to hide their biases. They're quick to refer to other people, other things as spreading misinformation. Casting spells. Because that's what somebody is accusing another person of doing when they say it's disinformation, misinformation. I'm going to read a little excerpt from something because I feel like it plays into this. It's from the Sutra of 42 Sections. Not to be confused with the Sutra of 41 or 43 sections. This is from the Sutra of 42 sections. It's called the Eye of Wisdom. The Buddha said, I consider the position... I'll start over. Let me start over. The Buddha said, I consider the positions of kings and rulers as that of dust motes in a sunbeam. I see the treasures of gold and gems as broken tiles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds and the great Indian Ocean as drops of mud that soil one's feet. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusions of magicians. I look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of dragons, and the rise and fall of beliefs as the traces left by the Four Seasons. You know, when I think about opinions right now, when I think about people believing things, having a stance, being in this kind of dissociated state, it's easy for me to forget about those things. The last couple weeks, I really haven't had very many opinions on things. Of course, I do. But I haven't really been thinking from that point of view. And when you're not thinking from that point of view, you almost forget those things exist. Like the last couple weeks, like forgetting that people even have an opinion about coronavirus. Putting my mask on when I go to the store or have to be around people, go to a public place. But forgetting even why I'm doing that and just being like, well, this is just like putting clothes on or something. It's automatic. But forgetting that people have very divided opinions on what that is and what it means and what you should be doing. I mean, I really truly have forgotten that in many cases recently. I've had so many other things on my mind. I've been focused on so many other things. I've been living in such a a cloud, you know, I've, I've, I've had such brain fog. But it's easy to forget that, like, people are going around and they still have opinions, but it doesn't even feel like that. It doesn't even feel like people have opinions right now. It feels like people have the echoes of opinions. Like when I think about people having views, having stances, it, it, to me it's like it almost feels like you're hearing the echoes of an argument down a long hallway and you have no idea who is even saying them. I'm just like, oh yeah, people think that way. But I can't even connect it to a person. I can't even connect it to a type of person right now. What I just read, you know, refers to, you know, the traces of the four seasons. It mentioned illusions. And it all does feel very illusory. but it feels like we're even seeing just you know the it's it's like we're seeing like a we're not even seeing the illusion itself anymore it's like we're seeing the illusion in a mirror and the mirror's covered in dust and smudges and how can you even have any response to that at all how can you even feel anything about that at that point How can you even be invested in that? And I'm reminded that this is going on when I see things like this Ottawa trucker strike where I'm like, oh yeah, this still, this is still going on. I don't even know where I sit in this. I do. Like, I mean, I know what my views are on that, but I don't feel like I'm a part of it. And there's positives and negatives to feeling that way. Like I have, as I've said before, I, I've been in a much more morose state than usual lately. Very morose. And, and when you're dissociated, you can, you can get very morose. Because the thing is, when you are engaged by all of the illusions, you do feel more alive because that's life to you. All of this crazy shit that people care about. Like when you have a group of friends who gossips all the time. And you're sitting there at a bar with them and they're gossiping about people you don't even know. You do feel more alive in some ways. Even though that's the most deceptive and illusory. One of the most deceptive and illusory experiences you can have. Is just like the the social artifices that we create is one of the strongest illusions we have. Not that relationships aren't important, but how like along with human engagement comes this like it intensifies the illusion because you're sharing it with other people. And it's interesting how when you disengage with that, when you're isolated you don't feel as alive in some ways because so much of being alive is is believing in this false state and i'm not i'm not trying to sound profound or anything in here but it, you know so much of being alive is is when you have faith in this kind of arbitrary false state. And, uh, I don't know where to go with that thought. It's just, just thinking about that. Cause that's kind of how I felt about people's perception of things. Like I don't want to go into another parable about a person I know. Like so, if somebody wanted me to do something lately... Like, somebody wanted a favor from me. And, and it, it was... It was so foreign to me. Because, like, they, they wanted me to do a favor for them to give an impression to somebody else they know, if that makes sense. Probably doesn't. It's very vague. I'm being purposely vague. But it's like I'm so tuned out. I'm so out of it right now that I was just like... It was so hard for me to understand why you would even want to do that like like they they were so concerned about giving somebody they know the wrong impression that they wanted to help me give them the right impression meanwhile it's totally it's just a total illusion it's like they wanted me to help them manufacture this illusion in their life so that that person doesn't develop the wrong illusion. <laughs> you know, it, it was just, is it, it really strange. And it wasn't that I didn't want to do them this favor, and I might still. But right now, it's just, it's very hard for me to understand that. You know, I mentioned before, like when you're feeling, you know, not suicidal, but just kind of, When you're feeling just totally checked out from life, it's often other people's wants and expectations that give you, that that place the most burden on you. And I don't think this is a huge burden or anything, but it's like being expected to participate in what other people want beyond survival. Like survival is a different story. Matters of life and death are a different story. And it kind of goes into obligation. You know, it's, it's your obligations to other people when you're in that frame of mind become extremely foreign. You know, like somebody else wanted to talk to me about a project. And I just, I just had to tell them. I was like, you know what? I'm not even capable of talking about this. Yeah, I'm just not even capable of talking about it right now. Because I can't connect to the motivation to do it. I can't even connect to the motive. And and not in a, I'm too depressed to find the motivation to do it. I literally am so disconnected from why you would even want to do that. And I've also reached a certain point where I'm realizing that I have a certain freedom. You know, there's many things that I've been holding on to and... I'm realizing now that like a lot of them I can actually let go of, dear diary, but no, it's a real feeling I'm having and it's interesting because you realize, oh, these things that I've just been, that have just been kind of churning in my brain, I'm just now kind of realizing that I can let go of those things, these parts of my identity that kind of come and go and they come back and I'm like, I'm glad I have those things. I'm glad I'm still involved in that. I'm still. I'm glad I'm still doing that. But a part of me kind of wants to just be done with it. This is very vague, I know. But it is very general, too. I mean, the reason it's so vague is because this applies to a lot of things. And so when you feel like you've actually reached a point where you can do that. You know, even talking last night about, you know, selling some things that I was on the fence about selling. But when I actually think about why I still have that thing, like why do I still have that tape? Why do I have this thing that I keep in a drawer that I don't actually experience? Because I'm imagining some scenario where somebody comes over to my house and I have nothing else to show them except this jewel... Because I want to impress somebody else. I mean, I don't normally think that way. But just going, no, you know what? I'm going to sell that thing. I have no reason not to sell that thing. Coming to terms with that. Coming to terms with those things in your life. And you have many of them. It, coming to terms with that is liberating. And I think part of that comes from the fact that I'm recognizing right now that there really is no going back. There is no going back to the way things were when I was a different person, when I was younger. The world is not going back. And there's a lot of people out there right now, and this kind of goes into just feeling disconnected, who I think still have it in their minds that... Things are going to be the way that they used to think they were. Meanwhile, it's a front. It's a wild frontier, and that's an opportunity. Going back to illusions, you know. Uh, <laughs> going back to illusions. I think recent years, and I don't think it's just the last two years, I don't mean to frame this around coronavirus, but just the last few years, the last number of years, I think it's made a lot of people, whether they recognize it or not, I think it's made a lot of people realize realize how illusory their lives were. How many things that they considered an integral part of their life, life, an integral part of their life was really just a, a whole lot of nothing. Not that it was unimportant, not that it was stupid, but just they realized that it, it, it wasn't actually as tangible as they thought it was. And the last couple years, they've just had it in their mind that I'm going to go back to them. That illusion is going to be real again. That illusion that I've been experiencing, and it seems so real because I was experiencing it continuously for most of my life. That's going to be real again. When can that come back? When will that come back? When can I feel that way again? Meanwhile, I'm just thinking, you know what? This is the best opportunity I've ever had to not go back to that, And I've been on the fence about that for a while, but I just didn't have the reason. I didn't have the motivation. There's no business as usual. And that should be a good thing. And if those things come back, if those illusions you used to have... If they do come back on their own, well, maybe they're a little more real than you thought they were. Maybe they're a little more real than I think they are. Maybe they matter a little more. But when you're coming from the point of view of, oh, that thing that I was doing all along, that thing that I thought was important to me, that I was doing all along, my goal is to go back to that. My goal is to keep doing that. My identity is based on that. Because that's what a lot of it is, is. My identity was based on that. And, uh... I think that's the biggest fear of all, though, is, like, losing your identity. That's why we cling to so many of these illusions. Because we think that that is our identity... We think that who we are is our relationship to these things that are actually far more fleeting than we ever realized. And would you want to do the same thing forever anyway? You know, do you want to do the same thing forever if given the opportunity? Maybe with some things. But that actually takes away its value. And so disruption is a good thing. I mean, disruption is what makes you realize what is real to you or what is more real than other things. I know this is probably annoying philosophical talk and very general, but it is general. And I'm just recognizing now that, you know, I'm being presented with an opportunity. And even though I am in this dark night of the soul, I don't feel good. What actually does make me feel good, what makes me feel hopeful, is that coming out of this isn't just me finding a way to retrace my steps and come out of this the same way I came in. This is where you look for new ways. This is where you look for new opportunities. And other people's, the, the obligations you have to other people are human. They involve having goodwill. They involve wanting the best for people but they don't involve participating in those people's illusions. Even if those illusions mean something differently to them, even if those illusions are more important to those people, if those are more real to those people. But you're not doing them a service by participating in those people's illusions with them if you don't believe in them too. You're actually doing those people a disservice. Because those people deserve... (laughs) Those people deserve to have... The participants in their illusion believe in it like they do. Like if you've ever played a game with somebody. Like if you're playing touch football on the playground. If somebody doesn't care, it's not fun. Like yeah, it's just a game. You're, You're just playing a game. But what makes the game fun... Is that you take it seriously. And by taking the game seriously, it becomes more fun. You don't take it personally. And that goes back maybe to the argument thing I was talking about. Like when I was in this argument about mafia history with my friends. I was taking it seriously and so were they. But it was fun to me. And that's kind of what I was trying to communicate to them, is I was like, isn't this fun to think about? But because they felt defensive, I could tell that by just trying to even continue the conversation, it wouldn't be fun for them. And you can't make somebody find something fun. If you are playing touch football in the playground... You can't force somebody to find it fun. They have to find it fun on their own. But if they're not having fun doing it, they shouldn't even be playing. And it's taking it seriously sometimes that actually makes it fun. I used to have that experience with action figures growing up. Where playing with action figures to me was fun. There was nothing more fun to me than having a friend over or going over to a friend's house, getting the guys out. We didn't call them figures, we didn't call them toys, we called them guys. You'd go over to your friend's house, he'd pull a bin out underneath his bed, and you'd see which guys he had. And you'd start playing with them. And, and what made it fun is that you took it serious seriously and you created a story. That's one of the reasons why I had so much fun with my best friend growing up, is that we both took it seriously enough to create a story. And if somebody was there who didn't take it seriously, who, who was just like launching rockets and throwing action figures around and making them fly, that was always a huge red flag. If you're playing action figures with a kid and he picks up an action figure and makes him fly and makes a noise, you can't play with that kid. So my best friend and I had fun by taking it seriously just like if you're playing a game of football, what makes it fun is that you're taking it seriously. I listened to an interview a friend of mine did, a guy I have a lot of respect for, and he was talking about his music that he made. And he was saying he never took it seriously and he never understood people who took it too seriously. And I respect this guy. And you wouldn't think of him necessarily as, a, as like a serious artist. But it was interesting that he said that, because I was like, you know, what makes music good is when the artist does take it seriously. Not so seriously that they're an asshole to you. Not so seriously that it's pretentious. But what makes art and music good is when the person does take it seriously, and that's actually what makes it fun. Like when you see a metal band performing, like when I see a metal band playing, if they seem to be serious about it, that's what makes it fun. When you see a metal band like twirling their guitars and acting like it's all a big joke, that's not fun to me. So it's funny how sometimes when someone makes it too fun, they actually take something away from it. They actually make it less fun, for me at least. Like I had a girlfriend years ago and, and we were talking about, we liked some of the same music. Like we were into, she was into some of the doo-wop and country and things that I liked. So we connected about that. But we were talking about metal one time because she just did not understand metal. And she was mentioning like seeing a band. She was like, oh, one time I saw a metal band and it was really fun. I liked it. And she was like, the guitarist like pulled out a cat toy. And he, he did a guitar solo like using a cat toy. And, and I was just like, "Fuck!" See, that's that's like overplaying. <laughs> that's like overplaying your hand. Like if you do something goofy like that, that's like blatantly funny and fun. It sucks. I I have no idea what the story was with the band she saw. I know they were kind of a joke band. People, there's you know, joke bands are allowed to exist. I don't believe in censoring joke bands, But to me, that wouldn't be fun. Whereas there's something fun about seeing somebody who has conviction. And I think that's maybe that's a better word for it than seriousness. But hearing this artist that I know be like, you know, I, I never really understood guys who took it too seriously. For me, it was just about having a good time. And sometimes people who are just having a good time actually have conviction. Like sometimes something is actually transmitted through that but it's hard to explain to somebody who's coming from such a different place. Like somebody whose idea is that, Oh, if this is going to be fun, it has to be like a clown. Cause that's some, sometimes that's what people think fun has to be. Sometimes people think it's fun when something is goofy, whereas fun can actually be the thing that's taking itself very seriously, that has conviction. Which is why, like, if you play football, it's fun to play with people who have conviction. The game's going to be over. It's not like your entire life depends on the game. It's not survival. But having conviction while you're playing football is what makes it worth doing. It's what makes it a good experience. Like I can remember playing touch football in the playground in elementary school and having really intense games with a group of dudes. The bell rang and we went in and we all forgot about it. But during that 15 minutes that we were playing football in the playground, we all cared. Nobody was goofing off. Nobody was breaking the rules just to screw with anybody. Because yeah, it is a game. We are creating an illusion by doing this. Like we are pretending this matters. Because that's what an illusion is. An illusion is pretending this thing matters. And when Buddhism talks about illusions, that's kind of what it's getting at too. It's saying we go about our lives and we pretend this matters. Like think about getting stressed out at work. There's a part of you that afterward, you're like, this is so absurd. Like, yeah, you want to keep your job and make a living, but there's a part of you that like when you, when you get really stressed out by something arbitrary at work or when everybody's stressed out, you know, that's, but that's personal. Like that's, that's the difference again, by not taking it personally, you can have conviction and take things seriously without taking it personally. Because that's when things go too far. Like when you're playing football with people and somebody takes it personally, it stops being fun. Because they start making cheap shots at you. They start getting stressed out. That would happen on the playground. Playing touch football on the playground, sometimes somebody would get stressed out and you were like, whoa, this is going too far. You should have conviction. You should take it seriously. But when you get stressed out by it, When you personalize it, you start trying to force other people to take it personally too. And one of the greatest skills that you can develop, and I think maybe some people have it more naturally than others, is being able to turn that on and off. Like you should be able to have an intense game of football with your friends. And then afterward, just be like, hey, that was fun. We all took that seriously. We all believed in that illusion, and that's magic. It's why a ritual is meaningless if somebody is there who doesn't believe in it. Like if a bunch of guys are wearing robes, lighting candles, and chanting, and one person is sitting there and even just in their own head is thinking, This is really freaking silly. I feel really stupid, and they seem stupid. Everybody's going to feel that. And that person shouldn't be there. That person shouldn't even be there for their sake and for everybody else's sake. Because if those other people want to participate in the ritual and it means something to them, they have conviction, well, you shouldn't get in their way. And so that's something I'm taking with me here. Like where, if I don't have conviction in something anymore, why would I want to ruin somebody else's ritual? Why would I want to ruin somebody else's game? And if I know that I'm going to do that by being there, you know, it's, it's not going to be fun for anybody it's like watching a movie where you don't laugh. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I had this experience like in high school where I had an older friend, he had graduated and he lived in his own house with his roommates and stuff. And I was over there once and he and his, his roommate, and his roommate was way older. His roommate was like 25. My friend was like 20. His roommate was like 25. I was just a high school kid, but we were watching that movie old school somebody had bought me a case of beer, my friend didn't drink, so I was just, I was sitting there drinking, it's not important to the story, but just that I was having a good time just drinking and everything, waiting for other friends to show up, but we were watching that movie Old School, which is just not my kind of humor, like I'm sure it's funny, I'm not going to say it's a bad movie, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, but there's a scene where Will Ferrell gets shot in the neck with a tranquilizer dart, and it's just very over the top, like he, he's talking or something, and then he, he like passes out or falls down or something. And my friend and his roommate were like dying. And they, they were rewinding it over and over again. They kept playing that over and over again, and they were laughing so hard. But I didn't find it funny. Like I'm not a big fan of, of Will Ferrell, but I'm not sitting there thinking like you guys are stupid this isn't funny. I'm just sitting there thinking like, this isn't making me laugh. Even though I'm drinking, even though I'm, I'm relaxing and I'm here, I want to be here. It just wasn't making me laugh. And the roommate who was kind of intimidated, he was like this really quiet guy who worked at the gap. <laughs> and he, he, but this is like the most emotion I'd ever seen from the guy like he was dying of laughter watching Will Ferrell just they were they they seriously watched it like six or seven times and then they knew that I wasn't laughing and the roommate turned to me at one point and he goes I can't believe you're not laughing and he was angry at me like I could tell from his voice and his face that even though he had just been dying of laughter the fact that I wasn't participating Like, the fact that I didn't find it funny actually made him mad at me. (laughs) Like, I actually ruined his good time. Maybe I didn't ruin it. But it was like, when he became aware of the fact that, like, I wasn't part of it. And there's nowhere else I could have gone. I mean, it would have been weird if I got up and went to the other room. I wasn't going to leave. But that's a common experience if you watch movies with people. Like, one of the reasons people watch movies as a group is because everybody there gets into it. Like, when everybody has a season finale party, what makes it fun is the fact that everybody's serious about it, in a way. And when there's a cliffhanger at the end, everyone gets mad because they they care. That's an illusion, if if anything ever was. Like, the idea that, like, I'm watching this fictional story with actors and I need a resolution. I need something to happen that will make me feel like there's some closure at the end of this season. Come on, Batty, you're barking at an illusion, man. Batty's barking at an illusion. But uh, when, when something, when you're watching a movie with people, like you're all participating in the illusion that like this matters, and that's what makes it fun. When you're watching something funny with people... You know, you want everybody to to enjoy it and laugh. Because that's what makes you enjoy it more. And so conviction isn't just like taking something deadly seriously. It's basically like... It's basically like responding in a way that, that is, you think is appropriate to the situation. Like, if you're playing a game of football, having conviction means taking the rules seriously and trying. Because that's another side of it. Like, if you've ever played a just a game of touch football and you feel like somebody isn't trying, it's not fun. Even if you're winning, even if you're beating them, if, they, if they're not trying, you kind of go, fuck, man. What's your problem? Like, fuck, dude. You're not even trying. Even if you win, like, even if they were trying and you beat them. Like, let's say you're playing football and, and uh, you win. You feel a lot better if you know the other person cared enough to try. And so it's that feeling of like, oh, this person doesn't care. But they shouldn't even be there. They shouldn't even be playing if that's the case. It's why, uh, it's why video games have stories and everything. Like there was that old game Grand Theft Auto, (laughs) you know, everyone was really into that game Grand Theft Auto many years ago and you could just go around and. Pick up hookers and kill people and outrun the police and just do whatever you wanted. But that got really boring. What made the game fun was that you would sometimes play the storyline. You know, and and, uh, caring is a big part of it. And so that's been a part of my life recently, is over the last few years, I've realized that I don't really care about certain things I used to care about. And in some cases, I'm obligated to other people. Like I'm supposed to care about something that somebody else cares about. And by keeping on doing it, you know, I'm doing a disservice to them. But anyway, I could go on about, I could use many examples of this because it's everywhere. It's part of life. You know, it's not that illusions don't matter. It's just that you have to care about them. And when you don't care about them, or you care about them differently than somebody else, well, that's where a lot of these disconnects come in. That's where a lot of our problems come from. And for some people, it's an identity crisis when you realize you don't care about something anymore. When you realize that it doesn't actually matter to you. And think about how silly it is for for me to mention selling things. Like, oh, I sold something. Not that that one thing represented anything, but just the idea that I can even do that at all. Because I realize that I don't actually care about it. I'd convince myself that I did, but I don't actually care about it. And it's not just objects, it's the things we do. It's the things we think. But we experience some kind of identity crisis sometimes, and we're faced with the option of keeping on doing it, or of keeping it. But many of those things, you know, if you keep on doing them, you're just kind of experiencing echoes of the same thing. Like the Sutra of the 42 Seasons said, you know, it's, it's the traces of the seasons. <laughs> and that's what it ends up feeling like. It's like continuing to dress for winter when it's spring now. You end up feeling kind of silly. And you don't need to do it.